Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to After the Jag Corps, navigating your career progression, a podcast for judge advocates leaving military service. After the JAG Corps assists officers transitioning from the military law practice by learning from individuals who have successfully embarked on new careers, providing insight on rewarding professional opportunities, job search strategies, resumes, the value of your military experience, and more. Now, here is your host, Tom Welsh. Today on the podcast, we have Robert Passarella. Rob was a Navy JAG, and before that, he was Marine Corps enlisted. But Rob retired last year and leveraged his time as a cyber attorney at U.S. Fleet Cyber Command and got into the cyber line of work. So Rob will tell us more about that. But first, Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Pleasure to be here. Well, you look great. And I can't believe that you have been retired now three months short of a year. That's right. Yeah, time has really flown by. How many years did you do in the service? We talked about this about a year ago. There was some computation time, but how many how many years were you in the Marine Corps? And then how many years were you in the, the JAG Corps? Yeah, so I enlisted in the Marine Corps in 1988, right out of high school. Did six years in the reserves and then did 27 years on active duty as a JAG. So total from beginning to end uh, with a little broken service, about 34 years. Wow, that's that's a long time. Yeah, I said I came in as a kid, you know, 19 years old when I went to boot camp and uh, a bit different when I got out. <laughs> so you had about three years of runway left that you could have stayed on active duty. Is that about right? That's about right. Correct. And so what went into your uh, decision to, hey, time to call it a day and, and go do something else? Yeah, gr- great question. I would say there's really two main things that drove that decision. One was... I wanted to leverage some of the experience that I had that was fairly recent. So you mentioned Fleet Cyber Command. Um, I also did some cyber when I was at CENCOM. And while I was at the White House at the National Security Council, I worked on the cyber portfolio. So I got to work at the end of the Trump administration and the first nine, 10 months of the Biden administration. And I really wanted to leverage that experience, the network, the people that I knew before I you know, before it became stale, if, if you will. So one was, you know, I had some relevant experience that I wanted to kind of see how it would translate to outside. And second, you know, was really a decision that I think all of us come to at one point or another is if you stay, stay around a bit is, you know, have, have I hit the glass ceiling? Is there anywhere else where uh, I could go? Um, there were some who 
thought I, you know, could do other things and stick around, but I had, I kind of reached a point where I, I thought that I, I really wasn't going to go further. There's probably one more job I would have stayed for if they had, had given it to me. And, uh, you know, at the level that I was at, those jobs had become very political. And when I didn't get it, I decided that it's time for me to, to look for other options. And it, I think the timing was, was, was pretty good. But, but it was a difficult decision because, you know, like I just said, my entire adult life, I worked for the Navy JAG Corps. And especially now that I've been out for a little bit, uh, I realized how much that was part of kind of who I am. I do miss a bit, a bit of it. I really do. But when I look back at the decision I was making probably about 15 months ago, probably around January of 2022, and I had to make a decision as to what was best for me and my family. And whether it's time for me to go and and those two things really really drove that that decision wanted to leverage the experience that i had before it became stale and second just realizing that the fun opportunities may have been over at that point yeah no i got you i'm a little bit different situation now i'm going to run out the clock but you know you mentioned that january of 2022 is when you had to make that decision and i'm looking at your profile on linkedin and it says you retired july 2022 so how difficult was it to get out or ask another way, how quickly were you able to get your retirement request through NSIPS, which the Navy uses now? And and I've talked to people when I hear there's there's different timelines and you sort of have to sit on top of it to make it work. Maybe it was you that told me that. Yeah, I, I think I did. Because if you recall, I was in the 06 job. So I was very much uh, in tune with a lot of the, the manpower uh, side of the house. And I had put in my, my request with NSIPS software is not intuitive. It's a bit outdated, uh, like other things in the technology uh, field in the Navy. And I thought I had done everything I needed to several times and it didn't happen. Thankfully, the folks at 4416 were very helpful and reached out to Jenny Goldsmith and she could see a different set of screens that I could see and she could see everything that I had done. But it, it, like at least the first two or three times, it had never gotten to the point where they could actually approve it. Even there was at least one point where I thought I had done everything good and I was ready, just waiting. And thankfully, Jenny reached out to me and said, you know, not the case. I mean, overall, it didn't take that long. Once I realized I needed to stay on top of it, I would say about three to four months um, it took for, for it to get, you know, final approved. But I will say the software and the process was was a bit frustrating. And I just thought, especially someone who had been a detailer and a community manager, I thought that it was just a matter of letting my detailer know. They did a couple of things in the system, and then all of a sudden something else popped in. But they've kind of made it this self-service uh, system, which doesn't really work as well as it probably should no, so I, you know, my, my only advice to folks getting out is once you do it, you talk to the detailers and you've done your part on NSEPs, is just to periodically, you know, follow up with it, you know, at least every couple of weeks, make sure that it's tracking the way you think it is. Because obviously, if you start looking for a job and you have an expectation of when you're departing and you can't depart, then obviously that creates all kinds of other issues. When we talked last summer, I ended up talking to Jenny as well and said, you know, I'm looking at opportunities and and if, if something pops up, I want to be able to make a quick turn. And, you know, she gave me a read, but of course it wasn't up to PERS 4416 or even PERS 4. It's up to uh, PERS 8 and, and it has to work through there. But the, it was funny when I, 
worked with our admin at National Defense University, I was told, well, even at statutory and 12 months out, he said, hey, you've got to go into NSIPs and put your request in. So I went in, I put my request in in December for December 1st of this year. And I would go back and check. And it was funny because it got denied. And the reason it got denied is because you're going to statutory. We will send you a letter telling you that you're going to be transferred to the to the retired list on that <laughs> date. I just thought, OK, <laughs> I mean, here I am initiating the process. Does it really matter? But I guess it does. But back to your story and not me. So you make this decision in January of 2022 and you're looking to get out in July. Had you already started working the networking aspect as a to hedge your bets or did you have to start cold from once you put your uh, papers in? So I will say when when I was at the White House, I started to ensure that I built my network. And I really can't overemphasize the importance of building out your network. You know, LinkedIn is a great tool. And it really is. And I found even in my first job uh, or looking for jobs, you'd be surprised at where people that you cross paths with some time ago, where they are now. And leveraging those relationships is, is really important. So I was looking ahead to see what possibilities were, were available. I think I had, I had requested a, a specific date. And I, I started, you know, talking to, to different folks. And, you know, given my background and, you know, because most of my work that I did was in national security and then within national security, I did a good amount of work within cyber. I started reaching out to uh, several non-JAGs who had gotten out two or three years ahead of me. Uh, a couple of gentlemen, one's at Cisco, one's at Microsoft, and who really kind of mentored me through the transition, how to think about it, everything from, you know, what does compensation look like uh, in the private sector? What are they looking for? Um, you know, what, what do you want to think about? It, it was very, it was very helpful. And then, you know, sure enough, uh, it was through a contact that I had that I actually got, got the job. And that's one thing I'll say, cause you know, I think I mentioned to you uh, before we started, Tom, is that, you know, I started, uh, once I retired, uh, I went to work for a technology company called Netcracker Technologies. They're a software company uh, that services the telecommunications industry. And I, and I recently left. So I'm right now in the process of looking for the, I guess, my second adventure uh, outside, of, outside of the military. And while you'll find, you know, websites like Glassdoor or LinkedIn or many others that you know, help you look for a job and you can apply for a job. I'm starting to become convinced that a lot of those are being reviewed by bots and that the only way you're going to get really traction on your application, it's not always the case, but is if you know somebody. So the, the place where I've gotten that first interview or second interview, or we've gotten pretty far along down the process, almost every one of them have been places where I knew somebody. And those other places where I looked at the job description, like this job is perfectly, you know, suited for me. I wasn't getting callbacks or, or wasn't getting that first interview. So, you know, knowing somebody is important, you know, probably finding a way to follow up with them is also pretty key to, to make sure that, you know, you're, you're, you're getting noticed. Yeah. And one thing I'll say too, and I don't want to go down a tangent if you're going to cover it in a different way, but one thing that, 
that I, I am doing now that I've been a year out, I've been talking to a number of folks who, who are getting out. And it goes against the culture of a lot of us that are uh, that have made the, the military our life is asking people for help, right? And so whether it's asking for a reference, asking just to, to meet with somebody and talk to them or get on a phone and, and speak with people, um, don't be hesitant to do it. Don't don't feel like you're imposing. I know I felt like I was imposing on people at first. And everyone I talked to said, no, this is this is the deal, right? We, we, we kind of live this life and we all take our turn, right? So you pay it back. So those two gentlemen who helped me, who had retired two, three years ahead of me, you know, they were helping me and they gave plenty of their time to me more than I thought they should have. And I've tried to do the same to others. So, you know, keep that in mind. I think most people that you'll reach out to that are especially, you know, retired military, they'll probably welcome the conversation and give you all the time. Back to your point about these online postings about jobs. I mean, you can go to LinkedIn, like you said, it's a great tool. Go to LinkedIn, look for jobs, put in whatever term that you're seeking. And it was one of the guys that I talked to on this podcast, Thomas Eibel, a retired Marine Corps Jack, who really kind of tuned me that looking at these jobs, you see that they are written by someone who has spent their time completely in the civilian world. And they're thinking of people that have been brought up in the civilian world, looking for three to five years or three to seven years experience means this is the amount of money that you're going to earn because they're targeting associates at law firm, ready to get out of the basement in a bunker and do something else. Or, you know, senior positions are looking for people who have been around and the military folks are round pegs and square holes or square pegs and round holes because they don't know how we fit and they, we don't fit into that paradigm. And I, I was sharing with you before that I've had my own experiences. And right now I'm talking to some folks who like you, I've knew on active duty. And so I, I think you're absolutely spot on on hitting those folks that uh, you served with and, and the areas that you want to go in. Yeah, so it's an incredible networking. You need to leverage it for sure. And it gets easier after you've done it a, a few times. I found that it just gets easier to, to say, hey, I, I, can we talk? And, and everyone has been very gracious with their time. So Netcracker, tell us what it was like as far as the work that you were doing there, not specifically, but did you feel like you were well-equipped to do what was being asked of you at that company as far as the policy analysis and the law and the management and those kind of things? The job I had was kind of dual-hatted. It was legal and it was operational and that I was ahead of their, their global security. And we had personnel uh, really all over the world. So the, the first thing I had to get used to was having people from different backgrounds and a, a different kind of diversity that we might see in the military, right? Uh, of the folks that worked under me, about 35% were in India. There were a handful of folks actually in Russia and a couple in Ukraine, which I can get to that in a bit. That, that made it very interesting because we had a big part of our, our engineering workforce that was in Russia. And when the war happened, it really turned things upside down. But um, I felt like the leadership and management that the Navy taught me or that I just felt like was a part of me uh, was extremely helpful. Uh, I think, you know, those ideals, whether it's a sailor or a 23-year-old 
IT professional or software engineer, a, a lot of the same you know, leadership techniques apply. What I found is, especially when they asked me to take over the global security, I had done cybersecurity policy, cybersecurity law, I did cyber operations. And so I knew big picture, but I, I did not have the technical background to really get into a lot of the minutiae that I needed to for the day-to-day -day stuff. But what I did find is that um, the generalist background that I had and what I did know from cyber and cybersecurity allowed me to ask the right questions kind of at that strategic level. And often I, you know, I didn't have to be the one with all the answers, but I had to know the right questions to ask. The one thing that was a huge adjustment for me, and it probably took me about a month, but once it kind of registered, I was able to adjust. And it's this, right? When you're, when you're a military JAG, you know, we don't do billable hours. Uh, profit is not in our vocabulary, right? We, we don't do things for profit. We do things for national security, for military justice. We, we do these things because the Navy as our customer needs us to do it. And if you go work for the private sector, their North Star is profit. They're in it to make money. They ultimately are. So, you know, when I do cybersecurity or I was overseeing the cybersecurity team, and we had about 80 people. I remember the CEO, the first week that I met with him, he's like, listen, I need you to think about the cost of cybersecurity. And this is something that all technology companies deal with, that all smaller companies that use technology have to deal with. He's like, I can spend all the money in the world on cybersecurity tools, professionals, uh, systems, but you can't quantify for me how much more secure my network is. And obviously things like ransomware and ensuring data privacy are critical to these companies. So he's like, whether I spend 5 million or 15 million or 50 million doesn't necessarily mean that I'm more secure. So the tension that I constantly had was to prove to them why we had to do something. And it usually was a customer that had a requirement uh, and it was in the contract. Well, there was a law regulation that required us to do it. So th that shift into profit, also labor, right? Yeah, obviously in, in the military, we're very used to, hey, we need people, we need the right people, we need the best people. And we're constantly fighting for, for resources. And that was no different in this private sector job. But one thing that was different is that I had to look at the salaries and how much we were gonna pay for someone. You know, a global company, you know, in the military, you know, you can look at the pay chart and depending on your pay grade and how long you've been in, everybody knows how much everybody makes. Private sector is not the case. Everybody makes slightly different. And then a lot of these technology companies and the company I was at is no different. They want to hire people in countries where they can get the expertise for much less cost. So, you know, you could hire one American or you could hire five similar qualified people in India or six qualified people in Ukraine or Russia. And, you know, with the advent of the internet and Zoom and Teams, you can, you can kind of do business the same way. One thing I didn't like, and a lot of the tech sector have gone to this, is remote work is kind of the standard instead of uh, the exception. And even post-COVID, they've stayed in that mindset. I would go into the office because the CEO would go into the office and we we're both a little old school. I think those of us over 50 still like shaking hands and and looking people in the eye.
eventually I settled into, you know, half the time I'd go in, half the time I would stay out. But most of the people that worked for me or worked with me, should I say, they weren't even in the same geography. So it wasn't even like I could meet with them in person, right? And we had people that were all over the place. So, you know, having Zoom meetings six, seven times a day was, was not unusual. So the war goes down and you walk into this netcracker job about three and a half months after Russia invaded Ukraine. So you threw it out there. What was it like trying to balance that with your part of your operations in those two countries? Yeah, it was extremely challenging because the company was actually founded in the in the 90s with a lot of software engineers who came out of some really good schools in Russia who were very, very bright. Now we have people in India as well. But um, yeah, when the war happened, first we had conflict within the, within our company because of, of the 50% that was between what we call CIS, which is Belarus, Russia, and, and Ukraine. Well, two thirds of those were in Russia. The other third was in the Ukraine. And as you can imagine, they had very strong views against each other, especially the, the Ukrainians. So that was an internal thing they had to, had to work with. Uh, from an employment perspective, you know, learned all kinds of things about immigration law and, and refugees because a lot of our employees in Ukraine left Ukraine to Poland and neighboring countries. We still employed them as long as they could get on the internet and they had Wi-Fi. We had a VPN that allowed us to very securely give them access to our systems and to our files and, and, and vice versa. But it was challenging. And then the, the, the most challenging part was while a big part of our workforce was in that part of the world, most of our customers were in another part of the world, meaning the United States and Western Europe. So 90% of our revenues came from countries who were really unhappy with Russia. And like in other sectors, you know, we all heard, you know, what big companies like Starbucks and McDonald's pulled out of Russia, we were getting a lot of pressure to do something similar. So we had to do a lot of changes. Um, we actually stood up legal entities in three other countries to kind of make up for the downsize of Russian operations. I think we, we actually set up a company in Kazakhstan, one in Serbia and one in Armenia. And then operations that we already had in India grew a lot, as well as operations in Mexico and Brazil, those grew a lot as well. The United States stayed about what it was because, honestly, American labor is just very expensive. Yeah. It's very, very expensive. Yeah. We want our $15 an hour and we want our stuff cheap. So there's somewhere something's got to give. Now, Rob, we, we were talking a little bit again before we hit the record button here. But, you know, it's an off-heard phrase that be ready that your first job out of the military is not necessarily going to be your last job. And you've already alluded to it. You have recently left the Netcracker uh, just this month, in fact, and have yep. branched out right now, have, have a little consulting business going and are looking for other opportunities. Take us through making that jump, the decision to, you know what, I'm willing to go do something else or try something else. I don't have a safety net like I did with the JAG Corps. Yeah, that, that's just great point, Tom. And probably the most important thing to kind of think through. I remember one of my two mentors said this to me when I was really stressing over where to go next. And as I was looking at, I had a couple of opportunities, some in government, and a couple in the private sector. The one that I took was the one that kind of materialized first and was a really good offer. So I took it. 
But um, something he told me which resonated is you don't have to stay. Just like I'm still on active duty when he's telling me this. He's like, you have options once you get out. You could go there. You could be there for three months and decide it's not what you want to do. And you can go on to something else. And I think for those of us who made a lifetime out of the JAG Corps, it's one thing to understand it. It's another thing for it to sink in, especially once you, and I think you and I came in when they were still doing augmentation, Mm -hmm. tap and those things. Once you kind of made partner and you were shooting for that 20 year mark, then it was all about doing the best you could you could within the ecosystem of the Navy JAG Corps, right? So you knew you were committed to the JAG Corps and you were going to make the best out of that. But honestly, once you get to 13, 14 years, you're not getting out because the lifetime retirement. So, you know, you said a little bit about safety net. I will say this, that between my military retirement and then, you know, if we have time, we could talk a little bit about the VA disability process. But um, that money has been enough that it gave me some flexibility so that my next job, I didn't have to make X. It would be great if I made X or two times X, but I didn't have to. So even right now, while I'm looking, it, it does provide a little bit of a financial safety net, even if it doesn't provide you another another kind of safety net. So, yeah. I took this job. It looked like a great opportunity. It was kind of at the right level I wanted to come in at. I think that's something for people to think about too, right? Whether whether you're a lieutenant or lieutenant commander who is separating, you know, prior to retirement, or you're an 05 or 06 who did 20 plus years, you want to give some thought to how you want to do it next and at what level you want to come in. Obviously, if you're more junior, you're probably more willing to, to take job that sets you off into into a different career. If, if you're more senior, I think different people look at, you know, the world differently. And I know in a lot of Navy Jags who want to leverage, rightfully so, the experience that they had while on active duty, the relationships they had within government, especially if you're in DC, you know, the opportunity to get a good GS-14, GS-15 job is pretty much there. But, you know, maybe you want to try something different. I had a mentor who had retired about 10 years ahead of me before I got out and I was going to possibly work for him. And he, he was the one that kind of almost convinced me because he had walked my path to give the private sector a try. And you know, that's, that's what I did. And at this point, as I'm looking at different opportunities, I'm kind of looking at everything, trying to, trying to stay flexible. And you and I also mentioned this too, is it's also a great opportunity to decide, do you want to continue practicing law as a lawyer or do you want to do something different? In fact, I know at least two Jags who, who I admire a lot, who got out and did something completely unrelated to the law or even policy. You know, without getting too philosophic, I think I've had some time to think and reflect on things. Life is short. You got to do something that brings you joy. And, you know, I, I felt like I paid my dues in the, in the military. And now I'm looking for something that hopefully I, you know, will continue to just enjoy, you know, once I walk in the door. And, but you don't know, right? You just don't know. until you Yeah, get you know, it's funny you should say that because as I, I've been working on my, my speech for my retirement ceremony and, and the confession that I've taken out is I went to law school because I was pre-law 
in college. I was pre-law in college because a senior in high school, I went and sat for this pre-law exam and I won it and I got $1,000 a year for four years as a scholarship. So it wasn't like I had a burning passion to be a lawyer. I got into law school and at Duquesne at the time, we took our exams after Christmas break. So it's after Christmas, we take our exams. First year, I'm miserable. And I've been watching these guys schlep downtown to the office. And I thought, I don't want to do that. And that's when I called the Navy and I've had a blast. I, I did okay as a lawyer and I had a lot of fun supporting teams. And I would love to find something that just absolute joy, but, you know, kind of talking to a couple of people, the, the law degree is your, probably your most marketable aspect, but I know that you can leverage that into to something else. I know it's possible to do that within the government realm. I know uh, Joel Doolin has gone from being a deputy general counsel at FEMA to being in an operational role, but I think it's much, much harder. And I'm like you, I want to do something different. I'm not yeah. necessarily in it for the money, but I do like that aspect of financial security. But since you mentioned the uh, VA disability process, you obviously have a thought on that. What did you want to share about that process? Yeah, so everybody will tell you, you know, go to TAP at least a year ahead of time and, and start working on the process. Completely uh, think that's true and, and, and you should. One very specific piece of advice, anyone listening, and this was and a piece of advice that served me very well from a retired master chief, is most of us have some level of sleep disorder because we're professionals and we're stressed. If the VA finds that you have sleep apnea, even a low, low level of sleep apnea, or you're automatically considered 50% disabled you know, or service-connected disability. That does a number of things. Everything from you know, your VA loan fee for mortgages goes away to, I can't even mention all of them because right now they're, they're escaping me, but there's a whole slew of things that if the VA finds you more than 10% disabled, it, it helps you with. So you go through that process. De definitely use one of those services. There's a number of services. I think I used DVA. The number of veteran groups that will sit down with you, they'll go through your medical record. And, and by the way, two separate processes, right? One is the Navy's process to medically separate you. And the paperwork that they give you is good. Hold on to it. But the VA process is totally separate, which was not something that I was very clear on until I actually was out of the Navy. And they helped me find uh, a number of things. You know, obviously, you know, in my case, you know, I, I first joined the military. I was 19 years old. I retired after I'm 50. So naturally, my body, my eyesight, my feet, my back, everything is different, right? So I'll say this for those of who might be wondering, because I myself, when I heard about the process, I felt a little uncomfortable with it. I'm like, is this something where you're kind of taking advantage of the system? And it's not. As long as you're truthful in what your medical record is, uh, as long as you, you know, present the information, uh, the system is there to is designed to help people. To, to your point, Tom, earlier that you know, in the military, where we're square uh, pegs and round holes, and we just make it work sometimes. I, I would invite you to 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 try to take care of yourself when you go through the VA process. Right, really do. You're not doing anything unethical as long as you're being truthful and let the process kind of walk through your medical record and find out things. In my case, they found like 11 things that they wanted to put in me for. Uh, at the end of the day, they certified seven out of the 11 for them I didn't get anything for. 
The other uh, seven I got between 10% and 50%, which is a sleep apnea. So, you know, just something to, to pay attention to. The other thing I'll, I'll say on the financial piece about walking out of the military, and this may not be a problem that most of you have, but just in case, when you retire, they're going to give you a DD-214. I didn't get it until days before my official retirement. So most of us will have a retirement ceremony and we'll go into terminal leave three or four months before we actually separate or actually retire. You don't get the DD-214 until almost the very end, right? So I, I reviewed it. I got mine. And in my case, because I had reserve time, I had some inactive time and I had active duty time, they miscalculated my retirement pay. So eight months later, two weeks ago, I get a notice that they made a mistake and they found out the mistake they made. And of course, it was a mistake that worked against me. So now I'm going through the process of of, of appealing it, reviewing it, and and probably paying back the government a good amount of money. So just check your DD-214 carefully. It's not always intuitive. They do have a contact, you know, to, to provide. I will say too, because you know, my last job was in the 06 organization, that JCAB under the 06 have some folks who will help you make sure that you're talking to the, to the right people and uh, who can make sure that you're talking to the right folks at PERS who can you know do what do what needs to be done, but just realize that there's a lot of different players. There's the Navy. Navy PERS is different than DFAS. DFAS is different than the VA. They all have their different protocols and bureaucracies, and uh, you need to understand that. Other thing you may want to do early too before you get off of active duty because we all have the CAT card. Obviously, the CAT card will be taken from you when you leave. A couple of months ahead, I would say before you retire and you hand over your CAC, you can get all your passwords done by DS logon. Yeah, that that's helpful to have have done. You know, on a couple of things on those points you raised. You know, I was thinking I was going to get out back in twenty, just as COVID was hitting. So I I went and I got most of my records. You know, you get them on disk. I I got them from when the time I came in the Navy back in 1994 all the way up till. I think it was like December, 2019. And I, I did the VSO, which is what you're talking about, the veteran service organizations that'll help you file your claim. And I ended up having two meetings, one with the Wounded Warrior Foundation and one with Virginia Social Services down the basement of the Pentagon. And I had two reviews of my records and it was, it was amazing. They came back and they had different things, things that I would have never thought of. And they said, get this looked at, get that looked at. Well, ultimately I didn't get out. But then a couple of years later, I just stopped by the, the medical office and said, hey, I would like to get my records from the last time I had them until then. So like within 10 minutes, I had the next two years. And then when I finally found a VSO here who would start working my case, I then went update them. So the moral of the story is I'd have to people is don't wait till you actually need those records. You can get them yeah, and yeah. update them and just have them on disk and send them virtually. I just today called to start the separation physical process. I've had a lot on my plate as far as international travel and the Florida bar exam. And now I'm like diving into all the things that I got to do to get out the door, all the things of clearing the Navy, which is much harder to get out than it is to get in. Yes, still the words from my mouth. It it did feel like it was harder to get out than it was to get in. What did I fail to ask you? What, when we were coordinating this, what pearls of wisdom 
have we not hit upon, if any, that you would like to pass? I mean, you've given us plenty of things to think about. Yeah, yeah the only thing I'll mention, and in fact, Tom, earlier today um, at, at noon, the NJS Foundation, we had a meeting and I'm, I'm on that board. Shane Cooper is, is a president. And something we talked about, and I actually reached out to Code 61 just like an hour ago. We're looking to do, uh, through the NJS Foundation, kind of a, a mentorship program. So we're going to try to match up JAGs that have gotten out with JAGs that are getting out. So what I what I propose to Code 61 is once you get an approved retirement or an approved separation, hook them up with the NJS Foundation. Because going back to the network, so you have the LinkedIn network, and I realize this more now being out for a year. The commonality, the connections that we have with uh, old JAGs is something you're going to have forever. It really is. But you need to leverage those relationships. You know, right now, there's two opportunities where I might get a job, you know, now that I'm transitioning out. And both of them came from JAGs, one who called me and one who I called. Yeah. But that network is critical. So, you know, build those relationships while you're on active duty. It's never too early to start your LinkedIn connections and, and maintain those contacts. It takes work. It takes work to, to maintain your network somewhat active, but it's worth it. And I'll also say this, and this is most people, this is kind of a leadership thing that most people I think know once you've been around for a while, you never know who is going to help you. It doesn't have to be the retired admiral or the SES or the CEO of some company. It, it could be the secretary, it could be the E4 that knows somebody who knows somebody. It's, it's sometimes incredible, right? We are, um, you know, a couple of degrees of separation, but we we'll leverage that network. I'm not sure if I have any other, you know, words of wisdom, but I, I would say that it may appear a little daunting as you first step out and you lose kind of like the infrastructure of the support system that, that is the, the military. And uh, maybe sometimes it even feels a little bit lonely. Uh, I will say that um, I do miss the Navy. I do. I think I'd be lying if I, I didn't. I miss the people. I do. That sounds cliche because everybody says it, but it's it's true. I miss the, the common uh, mission. That's something you will, I don't think you can find in the private sector, maybe with few exceptions. You know, Maybe you work for a company that discovers the next cure of cancer or the next technology that's going to change the world. And if you do, then God bless you. But the mission sense that you get from working for the Navy is hard, hard to replicate. And I mentioned before, it's about mission. It's not about profit. You know, most private companies exist, make profit. So in any event, it's been really great spending uh, this time talking to you, Tom. And uh, I'd say anybody out there who knows me or doesn't know me, if you want to reach out, please do be, be delighted to, to talk. We'll post your LinkedIn URL on the show notes. No, Rob, it's, it's great seeing you. Uh, it's a lot of great information put out. I really like the idea of getting involved. We, we get help and, and guidance throughout our career on jobs and what's the right step on a career-wise. But when it comes to retiring, boy, it is an individual game that you kind of have to figure out on your own. There are people out there who have gone through it. And if we can just find another way to leverage that, to be proactive in helping people. I mean, it's it's not in the Navy JAG Corps' mission to help people get jobs, but 
boy, it would be great to see that alumni network be active so that you can continue the fraternity on the other side, if you will. And, and that's the goal because, yeah, there's so many Jags have done out, gone out and done great things of all kinds. And what I think we're going to try to do, and, and now that I'm saying it aloud, it'll force us to work through it, <laughs> is put a questionnaire together that we give to the folks that are getting out. What are your interests? What's the geography? What are you interested in? And then from our network, see who's in that part of the country, who does that kind of work, and maybe put you in touch with a couple of people that can, you know, guide you, walk you through things. And there's no reason why we shouldn't be doing that, because I know we'd all want to. It's probably just a matter of organizing it. Well, Rob, thanks again, and best of luck to you. Thanks again, Tom. Take care. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the Jag Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.